Hi, this is Ellie Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast. And this is part two on pancreatic cancer. And last time I left off, we were talking about some of the things we look at when we're looking at involvement of the pancreatic tumor and uh, some decisions we need to make before we uh, have patients go to surgery. And here's just a good example. We look at adjacent organ involvement. Probably the duodenum is the most common, usually second portion of the duodenum because most tumors of the pancreas are in the pancreatic head. Duodenal involvement does not make a patient unresectable, of course, because in a Whipple's procedure, you resect the duodenum. On a patient with a distal pancreatic cancer in the tail, involvement of the spleen or splenic artery or vein doesn't matter because that's easy to sacrifice. Once you have extension to the kidney, once you have extension to the colon, it's more problematic. And sometimes the stomach you can resect, but usually patients who have gastric involvement, usually it's a more extensive tumor, though not always. And here's an example of a tumor involving the body and tail of the pancreas and extending posteriorly by the patient's SMA, by the left renal artery, and by the kidney. And you know that patient's just not going to be resectable. When tumor goes all the way back to the aorta, that's very problematic. It's just not something one can clear off. And here's just some very nice views showing that. I mentioned the second portion of the duodenum. In this patient, the obstruction was at the fourth portion of the duodenum by the ligament of trites. Sometimes the presentation of bowel obstruction or gastric outlet obstruction is really a tumor of the pancreatic tail, which directly invades in and obstructs the duodenum or proximal jejunum. And here's just a very nice example. You can see vascular invasion. You can see the tumor encasement at the ligament of trites, narrowing of the bowel, tumor infiltration, and both arterial and mainly venous involvement with occlusion of the splenic vein, involvement of the SMV, and involvement of the portal vein. Larger tumors like this one, you can see tail of pancreas into body, directly invading the spleen, directly also invading the stomach, there's also a subtle liver met. These are not the patients who are going to be resectable. Typically, chemotherapy. This tumor also extends near and involves a portion of the celiac axis. It's interesting. Things haven't changed over many years in terms of the errors we have on CT in looking at pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Challenges we have, small liver mets, particularly on the surface of the liver. We're much better at vascular encasement, but at times it can be difficult. It's kind of a borderline thing, and adenopathy. But the presence of nodes, unless it's massive nodes and the nodes are particularly far from the pancreas, that's not going to change whether a patient is resectable or not. It will basically change more of the outcome. So again, um, very important to think about this multidisciplinary approach. And as we go forward with some new chemotherapies, some new planning of surgery, all sorts of new things, multidisciplinary imaging in pancreas and across the board in oncology is going to become critical. Now, what are some of the potential pitfalls? I always like to mention some of the things that can challenge us. Once a patient gets chemotherapy and radiation therapy, our accuracy of defining resectability becomes much more difficult. There's a tendency to overestimate extension of disease because of the local changes that may be related to that. So again, it's very careful. It's very important to be careful, but also to recognize that you may overcall the extent of disease. Uh, typically, the situation these days is once patients get therapy, if the lesion does not change over a few months, then we assume it's fibrosis. And this is often the case. The question about using PET-CT is something that is being considered, and occasionally that may be helpful as well.
This article by Morgan, until more prospectively gathered data is available, we suggest for patients with locally advanced pancreatic cancers that are downstaged by neoadjuvant therapy that denial of the option of surgical cure by overestimation of the degree of vascular involvement, particularly venous, should be minimized. So when it's borderline, the patient will go to surgery. Now, another pitfall that we've seen many times is autoimmune pancreatitis. It goes by many names, and it's something that I never saw a number of years ago, but now we see it all the time. It's a type of chronic pancreatitis characterized by an autoimmune inflammatory response. Its key findings are the absence of prior pancreatitis or a good reason for pancreatitis. A key is elevated immunoglobulin G4. The IG4 levels are critical in making the diagnosis. These patients respond dramatically to steroid therapy, but at times it's very difficult to distinguish from pancreatic cancer. And you say, why is that? Well, first of all, the age will have a wide range, but most patients are over 50, so you're in the pancreatic cancer ballpark. Males are affected more common than females. But look at the symptoms, jaundice, abdominal pain, weight loss, diabetes. That's the same symptoms you have with pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Now, sometimes it can be helpful because you see extra pancreatic processes, including sclerosing cholangitis, IBD, renal involvement, retroperitoneal fibrosis. But often that's not going to be all that helpful to you. And again, the key thing, even CEA-199 may be elevated. And it looks on CT at times, when you look quickly, or even if you look slowly, look like pancreatic cancer. So what do we see, and why can we be really good at diagnosing it these days? Typically, the classic finding is diffuse glandular enlargement with loss of the texture of the gland, so-called featureless gland. There's no dilated duct. It's homogeneous or it's isohypoattenuating parenchyma with a non-dilated or diffusely dilated pancreatic duct. It doesn't look like that cancer of the pancreas. We see an abrupt cutoff. Another critical thing is you often see a halo around the gland. And in this case, you can very nicely see that halo. And yes, you can get peripancreatic inflammation with classic pancreatitis, but that's more like fluid. This, when you look at the coronals, for example, is kind of a halo around the gland. The gland looks big, but that halo or that cigar shape people talk about, I'll show you a few more images. You see what I mean? It's low density. It looks edematous. You've got to be thinking autoimmune pancreatitis. Pancreatic cancer, lymphoma, pancreatic cancer, you see dilated ducts, you see changes in the density, not this kind of haziness, not this kind of cigar-shaped. And I'll show you, sometimes it's so hard, but look at this case. Patient looks like diffuse enlargement of the gland, there's a stent in place, the patient presented with jaundice and weight loss, and I was sent to the multidisciplinary conference to determine whether this would be resectable for pancreatic cancer. Well, when you look hard, you say, why isn't there a dilated pancreatic duct? And notice how lobular the gland looks. You look at this again. Look at this other example. Look how the gland looks, the same as the last case. It's large and looks like the splenic vein and artery may be involved, but it's kind of this bogginess that really impresses me. So if you're in doubt, you look at the IG4 levels, which is you need to do. But then what you can do is you start the patient on steroids. 40 milligrams prednisone a day for two weeks. Look at that last case. There's the pancreas. But voila, simply looking normal. Here it is side by side. 
pre and post treatment. A very, very important diagnosis because you can save the patient from Whipple's procedure. I will tell you, we never knew about this diagnosis. Often, the only way we knew the patient had it was on pathology after a Whipple's procedure or distal pancreatectomy. Now we've been able to diagnose many cases. Another challenge is groove pancreatitis. The soft tissue within the pancreaticoduodenal groove, with or without delayed enhancement, you may see small cystic lesions along the medial duodenal wall. That's the classic appearance. And here's an example. You see the dilated common duct and dilated pancreatic duct, so you're thinking perhaps tumor, but you see that low-density tracking between the pancreas and the duodenum. That's very, very classic. Here it is in 3D. Just a beautiful example for groove pancreatitis. Now, personally, I haven't diagnosed this all that frequently. In this case, it really looked like groove pancreatitis. Sometimes you can suggest it. Sometimes you'll be right, and sometimes you will not be right. But it's something at least to consider. Now, when we speak about pancreatic tumors, we speak about adenocarcinoma, we then speak about neuroendocrine tumors, but something we've seen a lot more of lately is metastasis, and that's a very important diagnosis. Incidence in autopsy series up to 11%, but it makes up a small percent of the tumors we see. But nowadays, when patients are living longer with certain tumors, we will expect to see more metastasis. The number one cause is going to be renal cell carcinoma, but lung cancer and breast cancer are right up there. But renal cell is the most common. Every article you read, this article by Palmowski, renal cell was the most common. Okay. This article by Tan talking about uh, presence of metastasis, making the point again, there's a range of appearances that can be very difficult to distinguish from primary tumors, but there are some things that are helpful. Of course, having a history of a prior primary makes you at least think about the possibility. When you look at pancreatic meds, they're often solitary, but not always. You may see multiple lesions, and at times you may see diffuse infiltration. Most metastases have some enhancement, which is unusual because most adenocarcinomas are hypodense, so that can be a helpful sign. It's interesting that vascular invasion is less common with metastases, and metastases are often silent and picked up incidentally as you're simply following the patient. Here's a nice example. This 35-year-old male, there's a mass in the pancreas right in the neck, and it's obstructing the pancreatic duct. Classic carcinoma. It's very well defined, it's kind of round, but still, to me, it's a carcinoma until proven otherwise. This patient did have a history of prior metastatic myxoid liposarcoma of the prostate, and that's what this was. This was metastasis to the prostate. Unbelievable, very unusual tumor, and there it is metastasizing years later. Patient had a Whipple's procedure, and the patient's doing fine. Another patient, dilated pancreatic duct, there's a mass in the body of the pancreas, Again, you're thinking carcinoma. You might even think about a neuroendocrine tumor. This patient had uh, breast cancer, and this was a metastatic disease from breast to pancreas. You can get both breast and cancer of the pancreas at the same time in the same patient, BRCA2 issues, but metastasis is something to consider, and that's a sure, a lot better prognosis. You get it resected, the patients often will do fine. It's interesting, I mentioned before about metastasis enhancing. You can see there's some enhancement here. It doesn't look like an adenocarcinoma. Adenocarcinomas would be hypodense. In this case, you might even consider a neuroendocrine tumor as a possibility.
With the renal cell, of course, those are the classic. 10 to 15 years after diagnosis of the renal cell, patients are typically doing fine. It's an incidental finding. It may be associated with other sites of disease, but often that's not the case. And here's a nice example. It looks like a neuroendocrine tumor, right? Nephrectomy, lesion tail of pancreas. Beautiful example of metastatic disease to the pancreas. And here it is in 3D, very nicely shown. Sometimes it's solitary, sometimes it's multiple. What's interesting is here's two of them, one best seen in the body, three millimeters and one in the tail. Uh, you can see in the narrow windows, but these are the lesions that become isodense very, very quickly. So indeed, you want to be careful. Here's a case, left nephrectomy, very obvious, three centimeter mass, tail of the pancreas. Not that hard to make the diagnosis. But if you look 30 seconds later on venous phase, the pancreas looks perfectly normal. It falls posteriorly into the left renal bed. The colon has rotated posteriorly. The spleen has rotated. It's amazing how easy it was to miss that lesion. Now, they're often multiple, so you want to look very carefully. Here's a renal cell, largest lesion by the tail, but there are other lesions, 3 to 5 millimeters. Some are a centimeter or, or 15 millimeters. Multiple lesions throughout the gland. I've seen total pancreatectomies done in these cases. So again, very important diagnosis. Very nicely shown in the volume rendering. And here's just a few more views showing you with the MIP imaging that the pancreas is literally filled with multiple lesions. Now, if you thought about neuroendocrine tumor, you would never see that many neuroendocrine tumors. Plus, to be quite frank, if you see a mass... Uh, in the pancreas, it's vascular, and you have evidence of a prior nephrectomy. It's metastatic renal cell carcinoma until proven otherwise. So metastases are uncommon, but we're seeing them more frequently. Sometimes you can be very good at making a very specific diagnosis. Sometimes you can suggest it, and sometimes at least consider it. And a biopsy would be very helpful in that regard. Well, what's next for pancreatic imaging? Perfusion CT with dual energy is something that's of a lot of interest. Texture mapping perhaps can determine response to therapy or suggest what tumors might benefit from certain chemotherapies. Dual energy CT, PET CT scanning are all things that are being looked at. Tumor angiogenesis is essential for cancer growth and provides an attractive target for oncologic therapies. This is where perfusion may indeed become very important. Perfusion represents the alteration of blood flow and blood volume and permeability, and this may be very, very important in determining what tumors respond to what drugs. And we've seen this with other tumors. Perfusion may allow prognostic biomarker and response prediction. It may allow a predictive biomarkers prior to therapy. We may be able to better define assessment uh, of en enhancement, which responds and corresponds to response. And again, we can improve our response assessment, not just looking at tumor size. That whole area of tumor angiogenesis is essential for cancer growth and provides this attractive target. Very, very important. Now with PET-CT, lots of interest about being able to look at PET is a good way of looking at successful response to therapy. Lots of work being done in that area. This whole idea about texture mapping 
It's being used in other tumors, colon cancer. We've used it in liver. We've used it in kidney. It allows one to look at features of the tumor and perhaps be able to predict things. Like in colon cancer, it can predict who will have a poor five-year survival. There's a lot of work being done, and I won't go into colon cancer, but it's important to really be looking at some of these new techniques. Now, when you look at pancreatic cancer and we think about techniques, we have to make certain that any new technique become widely available in the community, be easy to execute quality studies if protocols are defined, it needs to be reasonably priced, and access to data readily available. I think it's very important that you will see the bigger centers having a bigger impact. Not everybody should be doing pancreatic cancer surgery or even pancreatic cancer imaging. You want specialized centers to do it who have lots of experience, can do it well. And I think this will improve patient outcomes and also really improve the science. And hopefully we can improve and learn more about pancreatic cancer with the goal, of course, eliminating pancreatic cancer or making it into a chronic disease. Now, there are many things I didn't speak about in this talk. There's a range of cystic pancreatic tumors and neuroendocrine tumors, and we'll be back with some of those topics later this year. And with that, I thank you for your attention, and have a great and terrific day. Bye-bye.